It's great to be with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Wild. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And before we turn our attention to Luke's gospel, uh, I want to call your attention to two things. I only planned on one, but this morning I looked over and I saw that Connor Jones uh, is back from an extended mission trip to Tanzania and just wanted to welcome back Connor and just say how, yeah. It's exciting to see the way that the young people in our church are sort of leading the way in zeal for the fulfillment of the Great Commission and, and the passion that God seems to have baked into their heart to take the gospel to the nation. So welcome back, Connor. A second thing I wanted to mention is an upcoming event that I hope you'll attend. Last August, we hosted our first ever church camp. Uh, in the midst of the pandemic, we noticed how easy it is to feel isolated and disconnected and we know that isn't God's ideal for our lives, that he would want us to be in community with other believers where we are living out the one another's of scripture, where we're praying for one another and encouraging one another, building one another up, carrying one another's burdens. Uh, we know from looking at the New Testament that the church wasn't simply a destination on Sunday mornings, that it was a community that believers belong to. And while we do have our wonderful coffee bar and we have the indoor playground, these areas that allow for times of connection after the service is over. Uh, we recognize there's only so much that can happen in that span of time, and we wanted to create conditions where we might have some space, extended space, to develop new friendships and deepen existing ones, and we had so much fun last summer, and we said, we need to do it again. And so if you have your phone on, you go ahead and pull it out, open your calendar, and block off August 11 to 13, we're headed to Ridge Haven Conference Center in beautiful Brevard, North Carolina. And uh, I'll mention that we have several lodging options from motel-style rooms. Uh, there's even an RV park. There are open-air treehouse cabins. And if one of those options is more appealing to you, you're going to want to register early to ensure you receive your preference. And uh, we'd love to have you there. As we begin, let's just take a moment and pray again. Will you join me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not far off. Thank you that you are not a distant God. Thank you that you don't hide yourself from us, but that you would come to us. And Lord, you know the condition of all of our hearts. You know exactly what each and every one of us brought with us into this space. And Lord, we pray now that you would come and that you would tune our hearts and our minds in such a way that we would hear from you. Those things that would distract us, that you would still them, that you would quiet them so that we could focus on what you would want to impart. And Lord, I think of those in our church family, especially who are battling some very serious illnesses right now people dealing with cancer and Lou Gehrig's and I think especially of the Hemphill family and Emma Hemphill. I pray that you would be near to them. Thank you that you're a God who draws near. Lord, we want to give you our hearts now. We want to be open to you. Help us to receive from your word and by your spirit. Amen. 
Well, I love those news stories where someone stumbles upon an object of great worth that was previously unnoticed for what it really was. Maybe you know the kind of stories I'm talking about. An aging widow decides that she needs to clean out her barn, and it turns out that the old car that's been parked over in the corner that's been collecting dust for decades is some automotive treasure. It's like, you know, a 71 Stingray with 25,000 original miles on it, or the old guitar that's been in the family for generations finally gets appraised and it turns out to be the craftsmanship of some famous luthier. Recently, I, I came across one of these stories. Uh, just about 60 miles northeast of, of Cambridge, England, there was a farmer who was out plowing his field and he churned up this chunk of metal, green metal. And he thought it was just some piece of machinery, and, and being a practical man, he took that out of his field, he didn't want it damaging any of his equipment, and he brought it to his house, and he used it as a doorstop for about 10 years, and eventually he grew weary of his doorstop, and uh, he was about to toss it, and a friend came over and said, hey, you know, just before you do that, maybe you should have a, a local archaeologist look at it, you know, just in case. And so the, the local archaeologist came out, and he took a look at his doorstop. Turns out, it was in fact a 3,500-year-old ceremonial dirk, or what we might call an oversized dagger, dating all the way back to the Bronze Age. It was only one of six in the entire world. Um, so being incredibly rare, you know what that also made it, right? Incredibly valuable. And the farmer traded in his doorstop to the Norwich Castle Museum for, are you ready for this? $57,000. That's what's called hitting pay dirt right there. <laughs> or maybe you recall reading about the retired couple who didn't care much for a large blue and white vase they had received as a gift. They thought it was ugly, and so they stashed it in their junk room where it was used to hold umbrellas. And they took no great pains to keep it in pristine condition. And over 50 years of residing in the junk room, it developed a hairline crack and had some paint stains. Well, one day it was spotted by a valuer who was working with an old friend, and the valuer recognized it as a Qing Dynasty lantern face made by a porcelain master from the 1740s. Turns out this one-of-a-kind piece had the seal of the emperor on it, and it sold at auction for $867,000, which was worth more than their home and everything in it combined. Now, kids in the room, hear me on this. I share this with you not to inspire you to go till up your backyard this afternoon or to ransack the attics of your aging relatives. I have a third grader. If he heard this, if he wasn't in Kids Rock right now, he would be in the backyard with a shovel this afternoon. I, uh, I, I share this with you to just to point out that sometimes the things that we can write off as insignificant might actually have a far greater value than we realize. And that's the point Jesus makes in our passage. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. It's one of my favorite accounts in all the Gospels. Just to set the stage, it's Tuesday of Holy Week. In less than 72 hours, Jesus will be crucified. And we find him teaching in the temple courts. 
Specifically, he's in an area that's known as the court of the women. And in the, the perimeter of that court, there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles or offering boxes. And I, and I love reflecting on this scene that unfolds because of what it reveals about Jesus' heart and his value system. We'll begin now in verse 1. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now, back then, widows were not simply women whose husbands were deceased, but women who were vulnerable. If her husband had left behind any savings, we know it was depleted because we're told that this woman is poor. This word could also be translated needy or impoverished. It's a word that draws attention not just to the circumstance of poverty, but also to its effect on the widow. There was no shopping trip to Ann Taylor that year to get a new outfit for Passover. There was no splurging in the market on the way home from the temple for a raisin cake. She's poor. And in contrast to the rich who were depositing large sums into these receptacles, we're told that this widow drops in two small copper coins. In the Greek, it's two lepta. A lepton was the smallest coinage in circulation. And we know that two lepta would have been the equivalent of one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Uh, a denarius was uh, the, uh, the day's wage for a common laborer. So we could probably think of two lepta in terms of today's dollars somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $1.50. It would be chump change to most. And what I want us to notice is that this doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. If you're taking notes, there are two principles I want us to glean. The first is this. God sees. And I realize that might not strike you as incredibly profound. But the ramifications of it are. Look with me again at verse 1. Jesus looks up. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he what? Help me out. What does it say? He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. You think this was a random coincidence? By a, by a stroke of luck, did Jesus just happen to lift his head up at the exact moment? I mean, were it, were it not for some fortuitous glance around the temple at the right moment, is there a chance that this widow leaves the temple undetected by Jesus, what do you think? No. It might be helpful to know that this widow is the seventh widow mentioned in Luke's gospel. What, what the gospel writer is wanting us to realize is that Jesus paid attention to those society is inclined to overlook. The marginalized, the vulnerable, the underprivileged, the down and out. Here was a woman that Everybody probably looked right past. She's a nobody. No special status, no wealth, no social capital, no title, no relatives in powerful positions. Her clothes are worn and tattered. She's used to being ignored. She walks into the store. There's no salesperson fawning over her. Maybe she's even begun to wonder if she brings anything to the table. 
You know, sometimes in life we can find ourselves in situations where we can ask, God, are you even aware of my circumstance right now? I mean, God, are you paying attention? God, God, do you see the way that I've been wronged right now? Do you see the way that I'm being taken advantage of? Do you see the way I'm being falsely accused? God, do you see the storm? Do you see the sickness I'm in? Do you see the pain? I suspect there were times this woman might have asked that same question. And there is no evidence that this woman ever knew what Jesus thought of her gift in this life. But her conduct didn't go unnoticed by him. In fact, it's so noteworthy that Jesus got the attention of his disciples. And he said, hey, God, don't miss this right here. Something significant is occurring. And I'm sure the disciples were a bit like the English farmer when he turned up the hunk of green metal. I mean, what's the big deal, right? It's like two small copper coins. That's not going to do much for the upkeep of the temple. That's going to buy what, like half a candle? And, and Jesus is like the archaeologist. He sees something his disciples don't. And he attaches a totally different value to it. He says this. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's as if Jesus says, my time is short. So before I go, disciples, let's have a little crash course on how accounting works in heaven. From a worldly perspective, this widow's gift, it might seem inconsequential. It might seem negligible. But on a divine scale, she has given more than everyone else. And maybe beginning to see the look of confusion on his disciples' faces and, and sensing the next question, Jesus just decides to explain why that's the case. Even though the others were emptying their sacks full of silver shekels into the offering box, they were giving from their surplus. They were contributing what they could spare. But in relation to what she had, this woman gave everything. And even though it's pocket change in comparison to the other gifts, Jesus declares she just gave the most. She put in more, is the word, than all the others. Here's the second principle. When God accounts for gifts given to him, God doesn't credit according to the portion, but the proportion. So with God, what's most important isn't the portion or the amount, it's the proportion. We could say this another way. The value of a gift given to God isn't based on the amount given, but on the cost to the giver. If you walk into your bank and you give the teller $100 and say, hey, will you deposit this in my account? You would expect that the bank would in turn credit your account $100, right? The balance of your account is entirely dependent upon the amount or the portion deposited into it. But Jesus says that's not the way it works when we give to God. The real value of the gift is the amount given divided by the amount remaining. 
Now, for those of you that just had a little bit of a, a flashback because of an equation, you aren't left brain, you didn't enjoy math, uh, don't worry, we, we can express this visually as well. You can think about all your stuff in terms of a pie. Your pie is your, your income or your net worth. And Jesus says the way that God measures the value of the gift is how big of a slice of your pie are you giving him? The woman gave him a huge slice. In fact, she gave God the whole pie. And even though the, the dollar amount was minuscule relative to the other gifts given, Jesus elevates her. Previously, her, her life has been defined in terms of less in comparison with the rich, and now Jesus defines her life in terms of more. He says she put in more. So what can we learn from this passage? I have three thoughts I'd like to share with you by way of application. And the first is this. I think this passage encourages us to give freely. Give freely. I say that because we know of those 13 offering boxes that line the perimeter there. They, they serve to collect free will offerings to underwrite temple worship. So this was not some mandatory tithe that this widow would have been required to pay. I mean, if anything, under the Mosaic law, we know that widows would have been expected to receive a portion of the tithe. This was a free will offering. It was optional. The widow didn't climb the stairs to the temple that day with the attitude you or I might have on April 15th if we owe the IRS money. Anybody excited to pull out their checkbook on April 15th and write a check? No, we do that out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of duty, right? But Jesus celebrates this gift because she gave willingly. Her posture towards giving reminds us of the Christians in Macedonia who are commended for the way that they contributed to the relief efforts in Jerusalem some years later. Paul writes this about them in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. How did they give? Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Scripture goes on to say in the next chapter that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That was this woman. She didn't give out a compulsion. She came and she gave freely. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm struggling with giving cheerfully. Does that mean God wouldn't want me to give? Well, that's a good question. Um, maybe just be best, let's hold that thought and we'll circle back to it in a minute. The second thing we can learn from this woman is that we should give what costs us. Give what costs you. As centuries earlier, we read about King David who wanted to buy a piece of land belonging to Arauna, the Jebusite. Specifically, he wanted that threshing floor as a site on which to build an altar to God. And Arauna told David, he said, oh, just take it. It's yours. You know, it's for a good cause. It's for the Lord. You can have it. Take the land. And David says this, no, <laughs> but I will buy it from you 
for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Jesus says that the reason that this widow gave more than the rich was because of the cost associated with it. The rich contributed out of their abundance, we're told. In other words, they waited till the end of the month. They waited until they had paid their bills and gone to the movies and bought some new cloaks. And then they took stock of what they had left over and they gave to God. Well, what's the opposite of that? It's the person who says, God, I want to prioritize you most of all in my life. I don't want you to have my leftovers, so I'm going to give you my first fruits. I'm going to give to you first, and then I'm going to figure out how much I'll have to go out to eat, to buy clothes, and to go to the movies. Giving that costs us is giving that's pleasing to God. And if you're wondering, well, okay, what does that translate to in terms of a dollar amount? How much should I give? I can't tell you a number, but I'll, I'll share with you some helpful advice from C.S. Lewis. I think this is worth thinking about. Here's what he said. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. In other words, I, I think he's saying that maybe all of us should feel some sort of pinch. There should be the sense that we've made a sacrifice. If we inventory our life and we find that we're not putting off any pleasure, then we're probably not giving in a way that costs and I think practically speaking, the way that we can be intentional about doing this is by thinking about our giving, not in terms of an amount or the portion, but in terms of the proportion or the percentage. What Jesus shares right here in these four verses, I feel like it's a great encouragement to those who have little, and it's a challenge to those who have been blessed with more financial wealth. This is a great encouragement to those who might feel poor. Jesus says, you know, don't, don't for a minute doubt the significance of your gift. If you give something that's costly to you, then that's just as precious to God as if you were to give all the gold in Fort Knox. God's saying, don't feel like you have to be able to write the biggest check with the most zeros behind it to be the biggest giver. The biggest giver could be a retired school teacher who's living off that, just the check that they're getting from the retirement fund. If they're faithful in giving away a percentage, that, that might be the most meaningful gift to God. So we give in a way that costs us. And I'll just mention this here. Uh, we don't see it specifically in this passage, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture that we can't outgive God. There's no one that can say, oh, I've, God, I think I outgave you. Pastor David has observed this in Scripture. 
that this is the one area where God invites us to test him. He promises that when we sow generously, we reap generously. Jesus says no one who forfeits, no one who sacrifices for his sake is ever going to fail to be repaid. Finally, we give as worship. Uh, there's a famous 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon. You've maybe heard him referenced here before. And, and, and Spurgeon one time told the story about a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener in that kingdom who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to his king and he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. And therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched, and he discerned this man's heart. And as the gardener turned to go, the king said, wait, wait, wait. I can clearly see that you are a good steward of the earth. And I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard this, and he said, my, well, if uh, that's what you get for a carrot, imagine what the king might do if you gave something better. And the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion, and he bowed low, and he said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will, therefore... I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. Uh, but the king discerned his heart and he said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed and the king saw this and he said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. <laughs> the gardener understood worship. When we worship God, we're letting him know what we think of him. We're expressing our devotion to him. And when this woman gave two small coins, she was saying to God, okay, I know this isn't much, but I want you to have it because I love you. In that little amount she laid out, she offered God her life. And that's ultimately what God is after. He wants our lives. God isn't after our money per se. He wants our hearts. And, and what we do with our money, all it does is it reveals the dispensation of our heart. And if you'd say, well, man, I just, I don't know if I get excited about giving in a way that's costly. Can't I just tell God that I love him? And to be sure, God does desire the praise from our lips as well. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that money talks. What we do with our money is important to God because it so clearly indicates the true condition of our heart. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if you consider yourself to be a Christian and you're struggling with worshiping God through giving, I think the remedy is to reflect on why we worship God in the first place. We reflect on who he is and what he's done for us. And it could be maybe that there's this sort of misconception of who God is and what he's like. See, God isn't like some mob boss that we have to appease. He's not looking for a cut. He's not coming around at the end of the month saying, what'd you bring in? All right, let me get my share. 
He's not like the bully who wants to know how much did you get for your lunch money, and then he's taken a fraction of it. God's not trying to dig in anyone's wallet or purse because he's broke, because he needs some money, because he's got some bills to pay. He has inexhaustible riches. No one's ever given to God because God's had a need. You see, God's like that benevolent king that just desires a relationship with his subjects. And he, he delights when people come and they give freely. And when they do that, he's a generous king. He wants to take care of his subjects. He wants to provide for them. And his ability to do that is limitless. And so when we think about the kind of king he is, we realize, wow, this is a king who willingly took off his crown and left his throne and gave his life in order to rescue us, in order to redeem us from the enslavement that we were in, to free us from this domain where we were trapped and enslaved and transfer us into his kingdom of light. See, God's the king who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus came and he gave his life for us. He died in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that we through his poverty might become rich. And when we just sit and we think for a minute about what our condition would be apart from Jesus coming. You can't help but explain Wow, Jesus, you are a king that's been so good to me. In spite of the fact that I know that it was on account of my sin that you had to come and suffer and die. And so what happens then as we dwell on that, I think we just want to express our gratitude by worshiping him. We want to express our gratitude to him for being a great savior. And, and we want to give as a way of just surrendering our lives to him and recognizing him to be Lord. You see, we as Christians, we don't give because we think that we can somehow appease God and stay in his good graces if we toss a few bills in the plate. We aren't trying to placate God or curry favor with him. We're simply responding in worship to what he's already done for us. We're like the gardener that wants to come and to give the big carrot just because he's been a good king. Scripture says that we love because he first loved us. And we give because he first gave to us. For God so loved the world, you know how it goes, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And when we read about the early church in the New Testament, we know from passages like 1 Corinthians 16, that when believers gathered for worship on the first day of the week, there was an opportunity to give, but you know, that was not the focal point of the services. The focus was the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us. And we know that the Christian life isn't about adhering to a to-do list. Rather, it's about living life in submission to Jesus. It's about living our lives in such a way that we recognize that we've been bought with a price. See, Jesus doesn't want us thinking about what we need to do. Rather, he wants us focused on what he has done for us. And we can't add one thing to what's been done for us. 
And you know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he instituted a meal to help those of us that are his followers remember and to reflect on what it is that he has done for us. It's called the Lord's Supper. And uh, we read a little bit about how we should approach this meal in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and I'll just mention that, that this meal is available to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And if that's not you yet, just use this time to reflect on what it is that Jesus has done for you and how he stands with open arms and how he would want a relationship with you. If uh, you happen to miss one of these individual communion kits on the way in uh, and you would like one, just slip up your hand and the ushers in the back would be happy to bring you one. And I'll also mention that, that after the service is over, if you have need for prayer for anything, uh, we would love the opportunity to pray with you and there'll be people at the tables in the back uh, that would want to do that. And now as uh, we prepare to receive these elements, let's just take a moment and, and do exactly what uh, the apostle suggests and just have a moment just to, just to examine ourselves, uh, to reflect on what it is that God has done for us. And this is a time too where I'd say if there's a relationship maybe that's not right or there's any sin in your life that's unconfessed, this would be the time where we would want to confess that and uh, think about how we can be right with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you now as grateful people, grateful for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your patience towards us and your kindness. And Lord, we know that we have not lived as we ought. And we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ would come and die for us that he would come and reconcile us to you so that we could have a relationship with you and we could know the hope of one day spending eternity with you. We pray that as we take these elements, that we, we receive all the benefits that you intend for us to have and that we would be reminded of all that's ours through our union with Christ Jesus and our participation with him in his life and death and resurrection. 